I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Today we have the privilege of introducing to you a remarkable individual who's at the forefront of shaping the future of cycling and championing inclusivity in our sport, Kimo Seymour, the president of events at Lifetime Fitness. Kimo may not be a name that you're familiar with, but his impact on the cycling world is significant. As the leader of Lifetime Fitness, a renowned health chain, Kimo oversees a multitude of mass start athletic events throughout the year. Some of the biggest races that we now celebrate, from Sea Otter to Leadville and Unbound, he orchestrates some of the most prominent and influential cycling races in America and he shaped these iconic events into a bigger off-road series called a Lifetime Grand Prix, probably the biggest off-road cycling series in the world. But Kimo's contributions to cycling go beyond the organizing events. He's a driving force behind the movement for diversity, equity, and inclusion in sport, recognizing the historical lack of representation and inclusivity in cycling. Kimo and his team are committed to breaking down barriers and making the sport accessible to all. In our conversation with Kimo, we delve into the profound changes happening in cycling at the moment, the dangers which all of us are experiencing on the roads in the form of close passes and aggressive driving. We also chat about that elusive spirit of gravel. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. We look at the before, the during and the after, and it's a whole lot more planning than just planning the, the race or the ride itself. It's what's, you know, what's the experience going to be like before? What's the experience going to be like after the event? You know, people, people sometimes will remember what happened after the event, but more than they'll remember what happened during the event. You know, they'll walk away. They, could, they might have a crummy day on the bike, but have a kick-ass time Saturday night at the after party. With enough kilometers on the roads, all of us, it seems, are going to have a pretty bad accident at some point. I think you're right. I think we're either going to have, a, either we are going to have a bad accident or we know somebody really close to us that, that are going to. This is a low barrier to entry business model. Um, there are a lot of towns around the United States, little, little country towns that would love to have, you know, a thousand cyclists come to town for three or four days and rent all the hotel rooms and fill up all their restaurants and, and go out and ride the roads and the gravel roads in the country. And in many cases, Many, we have we have some events where they're not they don't even require a permit. You know, there's not you don't even pay a permit. They just welcome you open arms. Kimo, welcome to the Roman Cycling Podcast. Anthony, happy to be here. Excited to chat with you. I believe your background is triathlon. I heard you describing your triathlon experience as you weren't very good at running, you weren't very good at swimming, and I think the only part you really seemed to enjoy was the bike. Does that kind of sum up your triathlon experience? Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a very quick learner, but I, you know, after being focused on it for six or seven years, I one day I just realized that I didn't really like swimming, didn't really like running. <laughs> Should like riding a bike. <laughs> buddy, a buddy of mine talked me into doing a doing a mountain bike race and uh and jumped on a single speed mountain bike and rode it for 24 hours at a then called 24 hours in the old pueblo and boy that changed that changed my uh trajectory from triathlon into riding a bike day in and day out how are the saddle sores after 24 hours it's pretty rough i'm not gonna lie to you <laughs> that was a long night <laughs> you know that i i learned real quick that i, I never knew this and i learned real quick that you know you the, the people that are the best at those 24-hour races are the people that can just go without sleeping you don't have to be very fast you just can't go to sleep 
you just got to keep pedaling, you know? <laughs> so I actually had a hilarious story from probably one of my most enjoyable stories in the podcast. I'll share it with you briefly. It was a guest called Sophie and Shelley, and he's one of the best endurance ultra bike packers in the world. And he was telling me an experience about how extreme it is. So he was racing in the Italian Alps and it was nighttime. He was on his third day without any sleep. And he turned a corner and it wasn't snowing. And then he turned a corner on one of these switchbacks and these alpine climbs. And he said it was white out, snow everywhere. And he was like, like that happened bizarrely fast. Like it went from no snow to like blanket snow instantly. And he's like, that doesn't seem real. So he could see the next switchback ahead, which he said was like maybe 400 meters. And he was moving towards that switchback for, he said, an impossible amount of time, like eight hours. And he hadn't got any closer to the next switchback. And he's like, what is going on? And then the snow was so deep, he had to push his mountain bike. So he's pushing his mountain bike, he said, for error after error and not getting any closer to this next switchback. And then he has the realization, oh shit, I'm actually dead. I've died and this is purgatory. <laughs> this is how you have to spend <laughs> eternity. If you fuck up in life, you have to push your mountain bike in the Italian Alps in the snow for the rest of your life. So he said he had a big sulky head on him for like hours, pushing this bike going, oh man, this is so bad. I can't believe I have to do this forever. And then he got a WhatsApp from his missus and she's like, hey, how are you getting on? And he's like, how come I can get WhatsApps in purgatory? This is bizarre. What an expansion <laughs> from Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, I, I think I had a couple of those those uh, visions in the middle of that night. Matter of fact, I think it snowed in the desert that night in, uh, in that 24-hour race. <laughs> First time I've ever seen snow on cactus. Maybe I was in purgatory. So what was your route into the Lifetime company? You know, I came to Lifetime through, actually I got bought. I had a little event company down in Arizona uh, with that gentleman I just mentioned talking me into doing that mountain bike race. And we still work <laughs> together, actually. Uh, he's been, we, we've worked together for probably 20 years, but we, uh, yeah, we had a little event company and uh, sold it to Lifetime about 12 years ago. I uh, was asked to come on and, and take on initially take on and, and kind of expand the Leadville race series. So the Leadville 100 bike run and the other events up in Leadville, we decided to do a kind of a qualifying series of events for the, for those events around the country. And so came on and focused on that for a couple of years. And then um, at some point there, probably, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, the CEO asked me to kind of take over and run operations for all of the events that we had in the portfolio and then that expanded to, to uh, about six, seven years ago to run in the, the whole business. So you know, we have a portfolio of about 30, uh, 32, 33 events a year. We produce around the country. A few of them are camps, training camps for some of the bigger events. But yeah, so I came, I came to Lifetime through an acquisition. That's awesome. I have a, a part of the podcast where I call it the Founder Series, where we kind of explore these stories of founders. So we, we might get back onto a Founder Series podcast and dig deeper on that part of it someday. But what I am fascinated about right now in North American Cycle, and I think the rest of the world is kind of mirroring this trajectory. We're seeing this weird ecosystem emerging in North America. On the one hand, we have the decline of professional road cycling and road cycling events and simultaneously the rise of the gravel cycling. And when I sit back and I wonder why this phenomenon is happening, the only conclusion I'm really coming to is one segment that's on the rise talking about gravel seems to be more clued into return on investment and sponsors with character building the athletes, with building stories, both long form and short form around these adventures. And even just the story arc in general of like, you know, set up conflict resolution. And there's so much YouTube content, there's so much podcast content all coming from that narrow section. 
And then we see the world tour and they're still so heavily reliant on, it's almost philanthropy for want of a better word on the other side. Do you have thoughts on why we're seeing that simultaneous decline and growth? You know, great question. I, you know, it, I, have, I do have some thoughts on it. And I think some of those thoughts led us to what, what, you know, some of the things we're doing, you've probably heard about our Lifetime Grand Prix, our series that we've uh, produced last year. And then again, uh, we're just underway this year with the second season of it. You know, I think, you know, the, the decline of professional cycling in North America, especially road cycling, I think the, the, the decline kind of coincided with the decline in, in road cycling in general, right? And in the sport, you know, any sport, you know, beyond mass participation, it takes, it takes fans, right? Money comes to the sport typically through sponsors and sponsors want to, they want to reach eyeballs. And if you don't have a lot of eyeballs watching your sport, you don't have a lot of sponsors wanting to, to put up money to, to support that, you know, that sport. And it, and in North America, cycling just has not been, you know, the, I think there's been a precipitous decline in fandom around cycling, you know, over the last, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years. And as fans have kind of kind of gone away from the sport, so have, you know, so have sponsors. And then so have gone the road cycling events that, that heavily re- rely on sponsorship, right? You know, the big professional stage races and whatnot that, have all kind of faded away and gone, gone by the wayside in North America. You know, they just, they, they were, there were, there were no fans left, right? Nobody was watching it. It wasn't a compelling story and they couldn't, couldn't sell sponsorships. And those were, those I think were almost, when you talk about philanthropic, I mean, you know, tour of California and tour of Utah. I mean, those, those things held on Colorado classic. They held on because they had some, you know, either one big company or a, a billionaire behind them willing to continue to support them for some period of time, you know, and eventually when that philanthropy ran out, there was no return on the investment. So I think that the rise of gravel, it, it's because it is so accessible. It is so approachable. It is so inclusive, you know, and it, and to be honest, it's, it's just safer getting off the pavement, you know, getting away from cars and, you know, like it or not, we live in this society and especially in North America where, I mean, you know, everybody's driving down the road with a cell phone in their hand and and it's just not conducive to either riding individually or, or big groups of people out there on the road and, you know, big packs of road cyclists together. And, you know, the cost to shut down roads has just gotten exorbitant, you know, without sponsor dollars, you know, promoters can't afford to shut down roads, especially, you know, close roads for, for, for big road type, you know, road races. Um, you know, they're, they're even, even in mass participation road, you know, road events, it's, it's hard to, you know, just financially, it doesn't work out. The economics are just tough with the cost to shut down roads and police and, and, and then, and then just, you know, push back from the communities because it's just not a, it's not a, it's not a fan-based sport in North America. So you don't have, you don't have, you know, communities welcoming people to come in and shut down their roads for a day, you know? So you know, a lot of a lot of different things like that, I think, have, have lined up to create this phenomenon where you go out in the country, you've got beautiful rolling gravel roads with very minimal car traffic. You're not really impacting the communities in a negative way. In many cases, these events that come into some of these smaller towns are having a positive impact on the communities, and 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 it creates a new a new community within a community. You know, if you come to come to unbound next week our event in emporia kansas it's just it's amazing what that event over the last 16 17 years has done for that community it's it has become a gravel community there are people there people there riding you know year-round 
going to the ride the Flint Hills out of Emporia because of what Unbound created there, you know? So, so I think that's, you know, I think that's been the dynamic over the last 10 or 15 years is that, you know, decline in participation in road events led to a decline in, in fans of, of road cycling in North America. And, and that decline in fans means there's a decline in sponsorships. So now, you know, we're, we've seen this massive growth on the gravel side and, and, and sponsors are coming back. They're coming back in droves, you know, and flocking back to the sport because we've got just, we've got such a big audience now. Just to pull at the thread of one of those that I really wrestle with, a point you touched on, it's that interaction between cars and cyclists. I don't know if it's just me getting a little bit older, more years on the on the legs out on the roads, but it just seems like it's happening more and more frequently. Like I had a friend's father who, you know, only a couple of months ago was tragically hit by a car and paralyzed. And I was just chatting to a long-term training partner of mine and we were like, is the cost benefit really worth it? Because on a long enough timeline with enough kilometers on the roads, all of us, it seems, are going to have a pretty bad accident at some point. I think you're right. I think we're either going to have, either we are going to have a bad accident or we know somebody really close to us that, that are going to. And I, I've said this a couple of times in the past. It's, it's been, it's been kind of a personal mission of mine. I'm coming up nine years this November 12th. My best friend was, was hit and killed by a, by a driver. And, uh, Oh shit, man. Sorry. And, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And that, you know, that experience really changed my life and it, and it, really motivated me to see what I could do. You know, as I had this opportunity with Lifetime and we were looking at how to shape our portfolio of events and and where we would kind of steer, you know, we were, you know, our company, we were heavy, heavy into triathlons back in the day. There was a, a point where the Lifetime Tri-Series was the largest sprint Olympic distance triathlon series in North America. And, but we've evolved over the last, you know, 10 years. And part of my um, hope and, and direction that I've tried to take our business is to get people up riding off-road uh, whether it's mountain bikes or, or gravel bikes, um, same with running, you know, I, I, it's honestly, it's the same with running and not, not, not as much the, you know, on the running side for me, it's not as much the, the, the car runner interaction as, as it is just the, the health of running on pavement and concrete versus running on trails. I just have a personal belief that's how that's healthier <laughs> mode of, of running, you know, so. You know what, I also think technology has democratized access to these trails a lot more because I remember starting out exploring when I was racing in France 10 plus years ago and Garmin GPX files, they weren't really around yet. Cell phone signal was weak internationally. So if you did get into trouble when you were on one of these trails, if it just felt too risky. The road felt safer, although you had that interaction with cars. It felt like, oh, well, someone's going to be passing by in a couple of minutes. If you were on the gravel and you had a crash, it kind of felt hopeless. But we have seen that massive innovation in that technology department now, which even though we're far away, we still feel quite safe and quite well connected. Uh, absolutely. I think that, I, I think that does, you know, that, that, that certainly played an impact and, and just the, you know, the, the access to, you know, roads. I don't, I don't know what I've heard. I've heard people say 50% of the roads in North America are gravel. They're unpaved. And, and so, you know, you, you think about just, you know, access and then uh, I'll get on we ride this weekend. We got a group going to go do a little gravel ride, getting ready for unbound. Well, I can pop on Strava, create a route in five minutes, upload, you know, create a GPX file, email it to everybody in the group and everybody's got it on their, on their Garmin or their Wahoo for the, you know, for the, for the training ride this weekend, you know? So that technology, you're right. That technology didn't exist 10 years ago and it does, it's created phenomenal access. 
for the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into, just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends, simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio, and if I have an error between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues. It just works every single time. The Adam is perfect for riding Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25%. If only my legs had a max gradient capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Watt Bike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com now and check out their full range. When you're building out this amazing lifetime community of events, like I, I use the word community there quite deliberately because gravel is famous for community. When I think about road racing, I've raced in around Europe and North America, and it's basically the same experience. You get dressed on your own in a car, you knock shit out of each other in an industrial estate, you maybe hang on and get a prize at some sort of pokey prize given ceremony, and then it's quite a lonely drive home. Gravel's very different. It's like, regardless of your level, everyone's coming together and having a beer and stuff afterwards. How much, when you were designing the Lifetime series, how much of this was actively curated and deliberate versus how much just happened organically you know a lot of it was actively curated to be honest with you if you look at our our series of events you'll notice every one of them has its own unique brand and to me and our team the brand is is defined by the experience and the experience of every every single one of our events is different that's kind of i think what makes even 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 at the let's call it the professional or elite level with the Lifetime Grand Prix, I think that's what makes it unique. And that within our series and then outside of our series and outside of our events, it, it, you know, people have gotten really creative with the experience around their events. You know? And I think that's, that, that's, that, that's probably what's made them so distinctive and, and so appealing. And, and, and to be honest with you, it is, it's a total, you know, we, we look at the before, the during and the after. And, it's a whole lot more planning than just planning the, the race or the ride itself. It's what's, you know, what's the experience going to be like before? What's the experience going to be like after the event? You know, people, people sometimes will remember what happened after the event, but more than they'll remember what happened during the event, you know, they'll walk away. They could, they might have a crummy day on the bike, but have a kick-ass time Saturday night at the after party. And that's what they, you know, that's what they walk away remembering. But I guess that's important from a customer retention point of view from coming back year after year and having these events oversubscribed because there's not a lot of barriers to entry. Like you said, 50% of all roads in the US are gravel. I'm guessing the economics of it means bringing a race like Unbound to a small town is quite desirable. So really anyone can come into this space. So what keeps you guys having that marginal edge year after year is all that stuff you're talking about. 
to be forward during and after. You know, we, we, we can't ever lose focus on it. You know, the, I've said this before as well. There, you know, this is a low barrier to entry business model. Um, there are a lot of towns around the United States, little, little country towns that would love to have, you know, a thousand cyclists come to town for three or four days and rent all the hotel rooms and fill up all their restaurants and, and go out and ride the roads and the gravel roads in the country. And in many cases, many, we have, we have some events where they're not, they don't even require a permit. You know, there's not, you don't even pay a permit. They're just welcoming open arms, you know, and, and it's fantastic, but it means that if you look at the calendar, it is getting really full of, of, of events. So low barrier to entry means a lot of people can jump in and start creating events. And there, there's, you know, any given weekend, there's, you know, there's probably 10 gravel events going on around the U.S. now. And so, yeah, we, we have to continue to uh, distinguish our events and keep that unique experience and, and, you know, to earn our customers back for sure. What was the motivation to aggregate all your events under that umbrella of Lifetime Grand Prix Series? You know, the motivation was, um, it's funny, I was about two years ago right now, I was, I, I had some health problems and was off the bike and the most I could do is get out and walk. And I had, I live here in Boulder and I would call all my friends in the industry and ask them that, you know, every day I'd have someone come go for a walk with me. And it was really kind of fun. We got to just chat like we don't, you never get to when you're out riding a bike and hammering on each other. And we'd, uh, we'd go for these walks and I started just kind of teasing the idea of, you know, a, a, a couple things. We certainly want to create something to, you know, we always have to, you know, continue to create demand for our events because there is so much competition now, right? Lots of events out there. We want to, we want to continue to create demand. So that's certainly part of it. But, you know, back to your question about the decline of earlier about the decline of, you know, professional road cycling in North America, you know, just scratching our heads going, man, what, where is this industry going in North America? And what, you know, could we possibly do something to help these pros that are still trying to figure out how to make a living at, at riding a bike? And it was, it's just gotten more and more challenging here in North America, you know? And, and so that's where kind of the idea came about that, well, what if we, what if we could get a, you know, get a few sponsors to come in, put up some money, put up a prize purse, create a series across five, six, seven events, and see if we couldn't create something that would draw more attention and potentially more fans to the sport, right? That was, we knew to prop up professional cycling or to continue to help prop it up, we needed to get more fans, more people watching what's going on in the sport. And because without them, sponsors won't come to the sport. We, you know, we'll always have the endemic dollars, you know, the, the bike sponsors and the, you know, all the, the suppliers and whatnot, everybody in the industry, those dollars, but there's only so many of those dollars to go around, right? And they're going to spend their dollars. They're going to put most of their dollars between, you know, t- professional teams, individual, you know, professional athletes, like some of the ones doing our events and then sponsoring events themselves, right? They're, that's where their market predominance of their marketing dollars are going. But we're all fighting for that same, roughly the same pool of marketing dollars amongst, amongst all those endemic sponsors. We started thinking, like, what do we need to do? Like, we, we need more eyeballs and more people, more fans of the sport to start to get the non-endemics to come back to the sport. To get, like, what's it going to take to get United Airlines to come back and start sponsoring? Well, that's when I see Mazda coming in. I was like, whoa, these guys aren't playing around. Like, because Mazda is not a cycling brand. Exactly. And Mazda was the first one to kind of bite and to jump on board and support what we're doing. And they've been a great partner. And that's a great example. It's like when we can get Bank of America and and United Airlines and, you know, pick your non pick your big non-endemic brand to start to come back to the sport of cycling and see the value and reaching that audience, then we'll know we're winning. 
you know, and that, and that's when, that's when the sport will take off again, but we've got to get, it's got to get big enough that it, that it's meaningful for big brands like that to come back and want to reach the audience. I had this exact conversation with a friend over a beer a couple of weeks ago because he was talking about the $250,000 prize funds, which is amazing. But he was dividing it up and saying, okay, well, it's 50% male, it's 50% female, which is commendable. And then you split it down, you know, among the various participants who qualify for it. It's like at the end of it, even if you come in on a podium place, you'd be lucky to cover your equipment and travel costs. I was like, well, that's not the point, though. The, two, the 250000 becomes a headline which other brands look at and now other brands start deploying cash against this. Like when I talk to, you know, I've had, you know, Rob Britton on, Dylan Johnson, Nathan Haas, all the gravel guys on the podcast, some of them are making more than they were making racing World Tour, racing gravel. And it's not because of the prize money, but the prize money has given that spotlight and that focus. Like it's almost magnetized attention back into this area of sport. Yeah, I think you know the. <laughs> should be careful how I say this, but the the two hundred fifty thousand is almost the gimmick, right? That's the hook. That's the that is the that's the headline. But we need headlines, right? We we need to create headlines because because you know the I think top you know first place finisher male and female I think at twenty five thousand dollars a piece, and that's not, that's nice. But I guarantee you, they're probably making you know they're they're probably making six figures you know from sponsors where the twenty five thousand just helps to cover their cost, right? And even down to 10th, we, you know, we wanted to, we, we wanted to keep it. It was a suggestion from some of the pros that kind of gave us ideas and advice that keep it fairly flat. So, um, instead of, you know, having a, you know, whammy of a hundred for first place and then having it fall off and 10th place gets a hundred bucks, you know, we, we kept it fairly, um, fairly flat. So I think even 10th place gets six or $7,000, you know, so the money is still certainly meaningful and I'm sure it's helpful and impactful for the athletes. But you're right. It, it's a headline. We need those headlines to get, again, more sponsors to the sport and more sponsor. I mean, that's, you know, those, those athletes that I think placed in the top 10 last year are probably making more money from their sponsorships this year than they were the previous year. Yeah, 100%. Uh, look, they use it for leverage to get onto, you know, shows like this. And, you know, it, it's win-win because my audience want to hear from athletes who've come top 10 in this cool, prestigious series. And now they're using that to magnify their endorsement deals for, you know, 2023, 2024. Yeah. When you look at that entire calendar of events you have, is there a favorite child? <laughs> Personal or for, <laughs> for the business favorite? <laughs> Well, Business, well, I suppose for you personally. Yeah, personally for me. I mean, I'm, I'm always going to, I mean, for me, I'm always going to kind of vote for the Leadville 100 only because that, that kind of got me into the sport. When I told you the story about my buddy, you know, that I used to race triathlons with who still still works with us that talked me into doing that first mountain bike race. And right shortly after that race, that, that was 24 hours in the old Pueblo down in Tucson. Shortly after that race, he says, hey, I got another crazy idea. There's this race called Leadville. Let's see if we can't get in. We threw our names in on a on a ticket with eight or six people, and lo and behold, we got drawn. So we did Leadville that year. That was two thousand seven, and uh, I was hooked ever since. I did it thirteen, but well, I did it thirteen years in a row up up through two thousand, I guess two thousand nineteen. So that that's it's a personal favorite for me, just because I I've just you know done it and I've, that you know before my time of coming to Lifetime and even being involved and having the, the pleasure and honor to be able to work on the, that event and that series. So that, that's, that's certainly one of my favorites. I'm, you know, Unbound has obviously, you know, become one of the biggest and one of the most recognizable, you know, probably around the world. I'm sure you, you probably even hear about it over and hear about it plenty over in Europe. And, uh, 
And so it's, it's definitely, it's grown up a lot. I think since we acquired it here in 2018, 2018, 19. Um, but yeah, I'd have to vote for Leadville personally. I'm actually heading over to Leadville this year. Stages are one of the sponsors on the podcast. So they asked me to come out and race Leadville this year. So I never raced a mountain bike race before. Obviously I've raced a bit of gravel and mucked about on the trails, but I'm really, really excited to come over and check it out now. Everyone that I talk to is like, oh, the altitude's a killer. Yeah. You know, it, the funny thing, the altitude, it, it is a killer. Um, you know, so everybody's gasping for air, right? That you, everybody is. The X factor is, do you get sick from it? And some people just get really nauseous and, you know, headaches and stuff. Other people, they don't get that. They're, they're, you know, like I said, we're all gasping for air and I've been lucky. I'm, I'm one of the ones that doesn't, you know, I've never really gotten the nauseous headaches, all that kind of stuff. Some people just really do. They just get impacted by it. So you're going to get some, get, get over a little bit early. So you can get, we can get up there and go pre-ride any of the course or you check it out or you just got to jump right in. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the plan. Okay. Yeah, who was I talking to? I was talking to Sofia Gomez and she was sort of saying there's, there's two schools of thought with it. Either you rush it late, like you get there two days before or a day before, so your body doesn't have time to get that altitude sickness or else you slowly kind of over a course of three weeks start giving yourself increasing altitude exposure with some kind of strategic Airbnbs. So I, I think that's the plan at the moment. My girlfriend, Sarah, co-hosted a podcast on a Friday with me. She quit her corporate job to come full-time on it about six months ago. So I think we're going to pack up a little bit of a mobile podcast set up and head out to the States for a little bit of an American road trip. Oh, fun. Well, we'll have to get together up there. I'm usually, I spend a lot of time up there in the summer, so um, I'll, I'll be up there late July, early August. We'll have to get together and get out and go go preview some of the course. I think Sophia's right. I think... You know, and I, I, I don't know. I've never done the the day before thing. I've always had the luxury, and I live in you know living in Boulder. I'm pretty close, so it can uh, get out there a little bit early. I think you know, I think that helps. Three weeks is probably a good rule of thumb. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Everyone seems to live in Boulder. Anyone I talk that it's cool on the podcast is like, yeah, yeah, I'm in Boulder. I love chatting to Alex Howes. I had him on the podcast like three or four times. I remember it was a real breakthrough podcast. Actually, I had a podcast with Alex Howes and. It was like a two-hour conversation, but it was like a two-hour phone call where we were talking about like what he had for his dinner last night and stuff. And I remember thinking, can I put this out? It's like, there's no questions. It's just like, hey, what you get up to today? Like real, you know, Alex, he's so chilled out. And then it was like one of our most downloaded and shared episodes. And I was like, okay, this is like, this is a direction. I need to listen to the audience now on this sort of more laid back conversation. One of the sort of events that sticks out for me is the Arkansas big sugar for a couple of reasons i know you guys didn't acquire that it was one that was created but i have some friends who are in the venture capital space and i know that walmart family have invested significantly cycling seems to be some sort of passion project for them i know they have a stake if not a majority in rafa and that's based out of there as well at the moment what's going on down in arkansas and you know is it worth checking out well, I think Northwest Arkansas is kind of exploding. I think with the support of of Tom and Stuart Walton and and their some of their their team, they have they have an amazing team of passionate individuals that are that are also really big fan you know big fans of cycling, big you know personally invested in cycling, and and they've done an amazing job. You know, it started you know to the best of my knowledge, it started with with just building trails and kind of like build it and they will come and. Boy, Feel the dream style business plan. Exactly. And they've done an amazing job. You know, they've just built, I don't know what, I, maybe 300 miles of purpose-built single track trails in and around Benton County, from what I understand. It might be more than that now. And 
and now they've you know now now they see that there's this movement with um you know with in gravel and they've got just access to just miles and miles of gravel all kind of within the vicinity there so it's really pretty especially kind of you know going north and and west from uh from uh, bentonville so they've just really embraced it and and you know their i think their approach i don't even speak for them but their approach is just to you know like you said build it and they will come but but create create a culture there um you know there's a building i'm forgetting the name of the building that they just opened but i got to tour it this past fall and I mean, they, it's a new office building. I don't want to say it's four or five stories tall, and they they build a bike ramp up the side of it so you can ride to work. There's oh, there's no good. there's no parking for the building. You know, you pretty much need to ride your bike to work every day. And you there's a bike ramp goes all zigzags all the way up the side of the building, you know, so you just ride up to your floor. And uh, they, I mean, they're just they really are about the cycling culture, and they have man, they have welcomed us with open arms. We you know we we launched Big Sugar, and we've had two editions of it now. We're about to have our third final leg you know final stop in the grand prix we went back and this year they or last year they asked us to take a look at the weekend before big sugar and and look at creating recreating a a, a nice mountain bike race and we've got the little sugar now the sunday before big sugar so really kind of you know our vision there is where i I think we're gonna try and turn that into you know turn that that big sugar what we're now calling a big sugar classic week we're really kind of trying to recreate what we've got with sea otter classic at the beginning of the season in april about monterey california kind of recreate that as an end of season kind of you know send off not only for for the athletes but for the brands and and everybody that partners with us so there you know the goal down there i think is really to not only bring you know consumers but bring the industry to arkansas you know northwest arkansas they're really doing a lot to to bring people you know both both you know vent promoters brands from with the industry they're you know trying to bring all of them there to northwest arkansas and, and you know and really create that community our sponsor today is caldera lab as road men we're out in all sorts of weather and i have to say i've really started to notice the effects of that exposure i'm just spending too much time in the elements and the sun the wind and the rain and it's taken an effect more fine lines wrinkles and visible signs of aging When I look into the mirror some days, it's like my dad's face is looking back at me. Over the past six months or so, I've been looking to optimize all aspects of my health and I've really focused on finding a solution to this exposure. I'm obviously not going to stop riding my bike. The culmination of my research is being Caldera Lab. I started using this product as a customer because of the depth of clinical trial data showing that this stuff really works. And I have to say, I chased them super hard to get these guys on board as a show sponsor. So how it works is they have three products and you use them in the morning and then again in the evening. The first one is the Clean Slate, which is a balancing cleanser that uses gentle plant-based cleansing, leaving your skin feeling exceptionally refreshed. The second one is the base layer, and this is a nutrient-dense moisturizer which hydrates your skin. And the third one is called the Good, and this is a serum which helps your skin to look younger, tighter, and smoother. The combination of these three makes up your morning and evening routines. We have an exclusive offer for our audience so you can try this for yourself and you don't have to take my word for it. You can get 20% off with our code, which is simply ROADMAN. Head on over to calderalab.com forward slash roadman and use that discount code to unlock your youthful glow and be ready for the summer. I'm going to leave that discount code and link to Caldera in today's show notes. Did you ever consider having the UCI involved? You know, we have actually. And, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, watching, I, 
it's interesting to see what's happening with this gravel worlds uh series that they're doing um you know i there was a lot of naysayers early on and and it's pretty easy to be you know there for people to have been critical um especially with the first year but you know i i i think it, it's potentially got some legs and and kind of curious to see how it pans out this year and you know i i they'll eventually they'll they'll i think they'll figure it out and and it'll you know i i think it'll become something significant you know i think we've you know in in north america there's probably not quite as much you know interest around you know uci involvement um not, don't know at this point whether they would add a lot of value to the events and you know, if, if, if they came to us and they, they wanted to get involved and there was something, you know, some sort of value that they would create for our participants, I'd be all, you know, all ears to hear what they, what they propose. But for right now, it's, it's kind of, you know, I'm kind of sitting in the bleachers watching what they're doing. Is that kind of inbuilt hesitancy stateside to involve you, the UCI, is that still Armstrong, USADA hangover or is it deeper rooted than that? Oh, I don't know. I, you know. I hadn't really thought that it's any relation to Armstrong or USADA. Um, we're actually we're actually working with USADA. We've 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 hired them to 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 do testing, even though we aren't sanctioned. We've we felt it was important to to do some testing around the Grand Prix, just because of the just the magnitude of what it's becoming, and and so we're working working with USADA on that. I don't know that it, that it's really a hangover from from those days. Um, you know, I think the hesitancy is just that we've reached a level of success without the UCI and, and it's kind of like, well, why, why do you need them right now? You know? So like, again, like I said, if if there was a value add, you know, I'm always thinking about the, you know, in our team, we always are thinking about the value to the, to our audience. Right. And, and what do they bring? And if, if they, if they come with, you know, something that is, is of significant value to the, not, not, not necessarily to us, not to our organization, not, not to our bottom line, but to our but to our athletes. That's what we would need to see. Yeah, it it seems like when I think about gravel, and I know you know some people, you know Dylan Johnson on the podcast, and he was taking the piss out of this nebulous concept of the spirit of gravel, like it's a, a living ghost. But I think most people will acknowledge there is something almost countercultural about gravel, and the sort of crowd that are drawn to that countercultural. I think the UCI kind of sits at the far side of that, you know, if you think of the counterculture on one side of the spectrum, for me, UCI and sanctioned events kind of sit at the other, where we've gravel, where it's like, wear what you want, dress what you want, you know, there's no rules, and the UCI, well, your socks can only be a certain length. They're, they're quite opposing forces. You know, I, I, I think you're right. I hear that a lot. Um but I also have to acknowledge that whether we like it or not, you know, nobody can really define the spirit of gravel, but whatever it is, it's changing and it's evolving because it is becoming more competitive, at least at the front of the race, you know? And so we'll have, I don't know, 20 some thousand riders in all of our cycling events, you know, across our portfolio of races this year might be close to 30, you know, it's less than a couple hundred that we're talking about at the front, right? and at the pointy end of the spear and the other i'm going to call it 29,800 are the ones that are making it all possible and so it, we have this tendency to kind of to spend a lot of time focusing and you know ultimately you know rules come about because of what's happening at the competitive end of the event but you know i just i think we've avoided rules that 
just or don't have play that don't have some benefit to the to the whole race, right? Or to the whole, you know, to everybody participating because that's who pays our bills, right? That's that's that you know that that's our audience. And so again, a lot of the, a lot of conversation is is around the the, the really uh, you know the professional end, the competitive end of it. But the be- the beauty of gravel and the spirit of gravel is that other twenty nine thousand eight hundred people behind the the two hundred or so elites that are doing our events every year. That's that's the spirit. So I don't I get a kick out of these guys that you know the get up guys and gals that get on these podcasts and talk and try to define what the spirit of gravel is. While they're the ones <laughs> up at the at the front of the race trying to make rules based on what the spirit should be. The spirit is get back you know wear baggy shorts and a button down shirt. And, and ride back in the back with everybody else that's, you know, stopping and, and drinking a beer halfway through the race and hanging out with their friends, you know, like that, that's the spirit. The front is turned into competition. Yeah. If you're debating whether to stop at the feed zone or not, it's like, it's a competition. Like, it's a competition. If you're testing your hydration pack in a wind tunnel, it's a competition. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. Do you think you'll ever bring the lifetime series to Europe? Oh man. You know, we, you know, we get asked that a lot and, and we've looked. So, you know, at my core, I, I have to think about like, you know, what does that look like from a business standpoint? Right. And boy, jumping across the pond is going to be, it's a big leap because, you know, the, the infrastructure and the team and everything we have to have in place for, for event number one and athlete number one is, is a big investment. I think the answer is yes, but the way that it's going to make sense for us is, you know, we'll, we'll have to go big. You know, we'll have to probably do something in the form of an acquisition or somehow we'd have to acquire a team of people that know what they're doing over there. Because to be honest with you, we don't know what we're doing in Europe. You know, we're, it'd be a, that'd be a challenge for us. So we'd, we'd have to find the right, right people um, to really lead us down that path. And that, you know, that, that team probably would have to come through some sort of acquisition. Yeah, there is some cool events popping up. Like this year, I'm going to go over and ride Rift in Iceland. I rode it last year and it was brilliant. But then there's other places I look at. You know, Ireland is primed for an event like this. We have some smaller ones, but there's nothing, you know, on the scale of a Rift and Unbound. I was like, there's opportunity around for this sort of stuff. But it, it's just that. It's the logistics piece and making it work. Yeah. I have a buddy that's coming over from uh, from Boulder here in a couple of weeks to do a, a, a bike packing, a 1500 mile bikepacking trip around Ireland. Are you familiar with that one? It could be the Wild Atlantic Way. It kind of tracks the coast. It sounds like that's probably what he's up to. That, that might be it, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, hear, I hear there's phenom- phenomenal riding over there. But yeah, no, I, I think we're, we're, we are definitely interested. Um, you know, I'm starting to feel like the market in, in North America has gotten a little bit saturated. Like I said earlier, I feel like there's just a lot of events that popped up over here. And, and, and you know, I would imagine over the next few years, we'll see some consolidation. It's just kind of natural, right? Any, any new industry you see, you know, kind of quick expansion typically, and then you'll, you know, eventually you'll see consolidation. And I think we'll see that here in North America, but, but I also think there is, there is opportunity over there. And, and, you know, I think to do it, we'd have to, we'd probably have to figure out a way to acquire something that had a team in place that could help us do that. Do you have safety concerns with any of these events? You know, I've ridden sportifs, fondos, you know, very occasionally. You know, my background's more racing, but I'll go to a, a fondo and I'll look at some of the bike handling and I'm like, whoa. Like, you know, we have a category system like you guys with cat four, cat three, cat two, cat one. But then below the categorized system really sits your sportif or fondo riders. And if I'm in a bunch with a fondo rider, they'll occasionally come on out on a group spin as well. And I'm like, their skills are 
you know, we all started with bad skills, so I don't want to throw mud at them and say they're they're bad skills. They're not. They're beginner skills. They have a beginner skill set. But then I look at those same riders and they take that beginner skill set and they go to an event like Rift. I can't comment on the North American ones because I haven't ridden it. But like I'm going down the sense in Rift and I'm doing like 60K an hour. It doesn't sound fast in a road context, but you know, on the gravel, 60K is fast. And then it'd be a crater and I have to bunny hop that crater, hard slam on, lock it up, leaning on someone. I'm like, whoa, that was sketchy. And I've ridden my bike full time, you know, probably a hundred stage races. I'm like, that was sketchy for me. How does that guy with the beginner skills, how does he get out of that situation? I often think he just hits that hole and gets vaporized and we never hear of him again. Are you seeing safety issues popping up like this? Oh, we definitely are. You know, that's, I think that's just a byproduct of, of opening up your events to thousands of people, right? You're not, not everybody's going to be an elite level rider, have an elite level skill set, And so it's, uh, you know, we, the, the bigger safety issues, you know, certainly people, you know, being able to handle their bikes and rough roads and, you know, potholes and gravel, loose gravel and things like that. That's, that's certainly a, an issue, but the bigger safety issue is that in many cases, you know, on, on 200 miles of, of, of a course, there's, there's cars there, there are, you know, there, there will be vehicles and you've got, you have to rely on your athletes to be sensible and, and smart about how they ride and not, you know, taking, cutting blind corners and things like that when there could be oncoming traffic. And, and I think you get lulled into this kind of false sense of security out on some of these, cause you'll go, you might go an hour without seeing a car. And then all of a sudden you're coming yeah. around a corner and here comes a guy that go in the opposite direction. And, and so it's definitely, I think, you know, it's the car cyclist interaction that we kind of fear the most. We definitely are, you know, we have to, you know, like unbound next week, we are having to invest more and more in course marshals at intersections with highways and things like that to at least try to police that people are stopping and, and looking both ways because they are, they're open roads. And that, that's certainly a factor. So I think that car, bicycle, you know, cyclist interaction is probably our biggest concern. But yeah, you definitely, you know, you're, you're going to be out there with, you know, each of those, those races, you're going to, you know, the 200 will start with 15 or 1600 riders. And most of them don't have the skill to manage to, you know, ride a bike like the, those, you know, those front pros do the front hundred or 200 elite level riders do. And just to finish up, Kimo, I'm wondering about the rule change on, I know every, I hate talking about this, but everyone's going to send me a message if I don't ask, the rule change on aero bars, non-aero bars for Unbound. It seems quite counterintuitive because we have the grouping, the majority of the race who I would say are least skilled in proficiency to use aero bars are still allowed to use aero bars. And the pros at the front, who are arguably the only people who could safely use aero bars on gravel, are prohibited from using aero bars. And the kind of rationale that's being put out there is safety. And it's kind of it's hard to make any sense of it. Can you help us unpack it a little? <laughs> yeah, I think um, yeah, it, this has been a hot topic here for a couple of years, and especially amongst the amongst the the pros in the front. And you know, I think. It, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a little counterintuitive. Um, our thought was we need to try something, right? And the beauty is we can try things and if it doesn't work, we can, we can pivot and adjust again. So, you know, the, this will, this will be the first year that we've, we've tried, uh, taking aero bars out of the elite field, um, and a lot, continuing to allow it. You know, the thought process is for, you know, most, you, you have to think about this. And if you could see the, the mass start of the age group, right? The amateurs, most of those people, especially at the 100, 200 mile distance and the, and the XL, the 350, 
they're out there for hours and hours and hours on end all by themselves. And so giving them the option or the, you know, of that additional position that they can ride in, you know, they might be out there 15, 16, 18 hours. The XL riders are riding through the night, you know, even the hundred milers, there's, there's hundred mile athletes coming in at 10 hours, you know, and they spend most of the day out them out there by themselves. So, you know, the elite riders, we've got them, you know, largely in packs at the front of the race, at least for a significant portion of the race. And we wanted to try just based on the feedback. And, and honestly, this was just listening to the athletes. And it was, it was a request predominantly by the, by the professional athletes, the elite athletes, asking that we take them out of their, you know, out of their field. So, yes, I, I can understand why people think it's counterintuitive. But if you, if you could see that amateur pack out there, they're spending, like I said, hours and hours and hours all by themselves or riding with a buddy or something like that. It gives them that extra you know, that extra position that might be a little more comfortable for a period of time. And we didn't want to take that away from them just because we wanted to see what would happen at the, you know, for the pros, you know, and, and taking it out of the elite field. So we're, we're anxious to see what happens, you know, that there's that. And then there's the, you know, the, the change in the start, uh, you know, separating the, the elites, the male and female elites up front, you know, giving, you know, you know again, trying to create a safer environment, mostly for the elite females, um, certainly the elite males. You know, we had some, you get some age groupers that probably shouldn't, amateurs that shouldn't be mixing themselves in up there, but they, you know, they, you know, Monday morning heroes and they want to jump in the front pack and, and ride with those guys as long as they can. And last year, a couple of the guys got taken out up there in the front. A few of the women were taken down by, by men, a couple of them by men riding in their arrow bars, you know, so we just need to kind of separate that out and see if we can't create a safe environment. And, and just try it, and if it doesn't work, we'll we'll pivot. You know, Kimo, I've loved this conversation. It can't be overstated the amazing work you guys are doing at Lifetime for pushing the sport of cycling forward. So I'm really excited to watch how it pans out and what you guys have planned in terms of acquisitions, new events, increased levels of community over the next you know three to four years. Thanks very much for taking time to chat. Yeah, thank you for the time. I'll see you uh, here in a couple months in Leadville. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.